Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Wade Matthew explores Advent in the Gospel of Mark. And now, here's Wade. Good morning, everyone. It's nice to be here and to have that mask off. And Carrie, I feel okay. It's a little inside joke between Carrie and I who were switching weeks back and forth for uh, last week. And uh, anyway, I am okay, Carrie. Before I start my 20 minutes, uh, I want to share with you a verse that I always reflect on on this time of the year ever since I came to know the Lord, uh, which sort of coincided with a friendship that I started with Joe. And uh, as many of you know, Joe is a very special friend to me. Uh, he's a brother like uh, no brother I've ever had before, but he's a friend. And when I think of this verse, I'm reflecting on Joe, but I'm also reflecting on the best friend I ever had and I ever will have, and that's the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So in Proverbs 19, Pardon me, 18, verse 24. A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so uh, when we come to this time of the year, it's my hope that each and every one of you will reflect upon that and understand that you have a friend like no other. And uh, I do hope, too, that... uh, um, Dave and Vicky and, and uh, Linda and Steve understand that we are not only brothers and sisters to them, but that we are friends to them and that uh, we do share uh, their sadness, but we share the joy, too, uh, in knowing that the Lord uh, is over all. And so uh, we pray for you at this time. I was told I had 20 minutes to talk about the Advent in the Gospel of Mark. So this is going to be a Coles version, an abbreviated version, and I'm going to expect you to read some of these verses later on as we go through it. I obviously can't touch all things, but uh, we're going to see what we can do here. I want to welcome you all here this morning, whether you're on Zoom or whether you're here live. Uh, And I also want to acknowledge the excellent presentations that we've had over the past few weeks about the Advent, the season of Advent. I mean, I think that uh, we've really spelt it out and we've really dealt with it as it should be dealt with. Uh, So I'd like to begin just by turning uh, to our Lord in prayer as we begin our our day today. Lord, we ask as we come before you now to show us the essence of your plan for us through Mark's gospel, through the Holy Spirit, and because of the redemptive power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, help us also to act upon what you will show us. In the name of your Son, Jesus, amen. Amen. So in this next slide, I'm going to take this word by word. We're going to talk about Advent before we get to the rest of it. Now, the word Advent is derived from a Latin word, Adventus, which is a translation of a Greek word, parousia, which means coming. But there's more to it than just coming. And we've talked about this before as well, but I just want to reflect on that a little bit. In our churches today, we look back and remember Christ's coming with joy and celebration. We call that event Christmas. But it's also a time when we reflect upon the future 
as we await in eager anticipation of his second coming as Christ, our Lord and Savior, over the kingdom of earth. He's going to establish and claim his kingdom at that time when he returns to his people. And we all anticipate that. That's the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And while Christ is, or Christmas, pardon me, is a singular day of celebration for one particular event, Advent is more than that to me. It's a celebration of God's promise, and it's something that goes on day in and day out. The promise for Israel and the promise for the church in Mark's time is no different than us today here in this church. It is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Christ has come, and he will come again. This is the essence of Advent. Our brother Steve recently used the quote, The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who themselves they know to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. Dietrich Bonar. That says an awful lot, and that really is the crux of our problem and where we need to start. We're hoping for something or someone who can fix our life, who can fix what we have before us. We're troubled. We're troubled not only maybe physically, maybe mentally, but we are troubled spiritually. We're lost. We're full of imperfections. Each and every one of us were like that until we came to know the Lord and Savior. And it's not enough to tell you that there's Botox in this world because that can't fix all your imperfections. Not even the imperfections of one person. Such shortcomings apply to each and every one of us. And whether you look around and you see a brother or a sister that you elevate to a level perhaps above yours, one who you think walks a straighter line, a higher level with the Lord, don't believe it. They're as imperfected as you are. It's only because of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we are all together. And when we are all together, we're all on one plane. There's not some of us that are above others. We're all on the same plane. And that's because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That's our starting point. So as we go to the Gospel of Mark, Okay, we see that there are two items there. Jesus the servant, Savior and sovereign. Let's just spend a moment on Mark because we really don't do that. We spend an awful lot of time in the book of Matthew as we talk about the genealogy. We spend an awful lot of time in Luke as we talk about the Christmas story. And we spend a lot of time in John as we talk about his flowery prose and how he really gets into detail. But Mark's not like that. Mark is probably the most neglected gospel of the early church, and maybe even the most neglected gospel today. Indeed, there's little or no commentary written on Mark until about the 6th century. Now, there's lots of reasons for that. It's by far the shortest of the four gospels. 90% of the stories that are found are found either in Matthew or Luke as well. The early church father, Augustine, considered Mark to be a mere abbreviation of Matthew and Luke. But no matter what you think of Mark, he's an everyday writer. He's like you and me. He has a rougher literary style than his peers. He's not as elegant, perhaps, as Luke. Uh, 
he's not as thematically structured as Matthew is, as he goes through the genealogy of Jesus. But he's concise and to the point. And there's an urgency here with Mark when you read it. And you may not have noticed this, but there is a Greek, in the Greek version of this, there is a Greek word that Mark uses 41 times. And Mark is not that long of a book. But he uses this word that translates into English as immediately. Immediately. In modern language, Mark's gospel is almost like a message on steroids. It's written as a motivational call to action and conversion that appeals to common Greeks. And that's what he meant it to be. His book gives no detail of the early life of Jesus Christ. It doesn't start until he meets John the Baptist. That's strange, because that's basically 30 years into his life, give or take. But Mark does that on purpose, because this is where the urgency begins. His book gives no detail, but he simply starts at the point of acknowledgement as to who Jesus Christ is. By one no less than his Father in heaven, after Jesus publicly states his beliefs through the baptism by John the Baptist. Here the ministry of servanthood of Jesus Christ begins. Mark's focus is upon two themes. The acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, something the people were waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. And through the many power examples of his power, he shows that he is indeed this Messiah. But secondly, the divine purpose for each one who exhibits the same beliefs as this Messiah, the need to serve by spreading the gospel. The need to serve by spreading the good news. It's one's personal choice to act, to serve. And in that theme, he uses Jesus Christ emphatically as an example to emulate. So as we go to the next slide, we see the question, well, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Mark 4:41. Early in the ministry of Jesus, Mark records the questions that surround the identity of Jesus. And many people asked who this individual was. Even earlier in Mark 2.9, after Jesus had healed the paralytic, the scribes reasoned in their hearts and spoke, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They knew they were in the presence of someone special. They either just didn't want to acknowledge it, or they wouldn't accept it. You know, it's no different than today. Because before we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we've all asked that question, I'm sure. And we continue to ask that question perhaps even today when difficulties come before us. Let's look at how Mark illustrates Jesus as the Son of God, the Son of Man. So Jesus is the Son of Man. Next slide, Dave. Here's a bunch of verses, and I'm not going to go through them individually. You can do that for yourselves. But basically, this list illustrates some of those who recognize that Jesus was special. Jesus was someone different from anyone else the world had ever seen up until that time, and indeed up until this very day. These verses are also a witness to his power, power that was exhibited from above under the authority of God the Father. Now, there are a lot of verses there. Most of them 
are in the first and second chapters. There are 16 chapters in Mark. I guarantee you that there are a lot more verses than what's on that list. And so please examine those. As we go to the next slide, we see that Jesus is also a servant. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Jesus' authority because I think it's been dealt with over the past three or four weeks as we've talked about the Advent and we've talked about the coming of Jesus and why he was here. It's not only about who he is, but it's about what he is. His purpose defines his legacy. He is a servant to his father, and because of this obedience, he becomes a servant to us. Think about that. That's a pretty remarkable statement. Because he obeyed his father, it included us. It makes him obedient to us in many ways. The first line of Mark's gospel is clearly meant to confirm this. The beginning of the gospel, or the good news, of Jesus Christ the Son of God. The good news, the ministry of Jesus Christ, the servanthood of Jesus Christ under his authority as given by the Father above. Mark writes to show that Jesus' crucifixion does not negate his claim to be the Messiah, but rather affirms it. And his faithfulness to this mission, to his Father, to his servanthood, illustrates his purpose for coming to earth. And it becomes the model for all discipleship. And in Mark 10.45, he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. These are the words of Jesus Christ. Not the words of Mark. Not your words. Not someone's words on the side of the road. But the words of Jesus Christ. He came not to, ser- not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as we go to the next slide, we're going to include Jesus Christ, servant king. And how will he serve? Well, he serves through these different words that I put up here. And once again, these are all in the first and second chapters. But they are examples through every chapter. And it repeats on and on and on. And you would say, well, why does he tell us the same story two or three different ways? Well, that may be the case, but he's also speaking to two or three different groups of people. Even though there may be someone who is sick in each story, the group of people who are observing it are different. And Jesus feels that he has to tell these people the purpose for why he's there. His obedience to the Father and his preaching of the good news, in other words, his servanthood, are examples of his serving his Father. The list is endless and includes preaching the good news, recruiting others, like those he will make fishers of men, and that's in the very beginning of his ministry, as Mark records, by teaching those in the synagogue, and we've certainly read about him throwing people out of the synagogue and people being in awe of what he knew and what he was able to teach, that someone this young who had not been through uh, a mentoring process of scribes and Pharisees knew the answers to all these questions. He rebuked demons. That's pretty impressive. Because that's something we can't do. 
about those who chose to deny the Trinity, chose to deny Jesus Christ or even God the Father by making false idols or the Holy Spirit. He heals the sick and the disabled, not just through power, but through compassion and love. We can do that. We can serve that way. By suffering and dying on the cross, by being faithful to his Father above, these are ways that he can serve. And his, these are ways that he can serve. And his... And once again, I read Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' death will be a service of atoning sacrifice to pay for sins and to restore human beings to the right relationship that they should have with God the Father. That's obedience. That's servanthood. That's serving. So when I said at the beginning that he uses Jesus as his example to display servanthood, this is it. So as we go to the next slide, it asks the question, what is your part? You know, we've come full circle here, haven't we? We started off, we were sinners, didn't have a clue what we were doing. We needed help. We needed a big time. We professed things with our mouth. We said that, Jesus, we believe that you are Lord and Savior, that you are the Son of God, that you came to earth and died on the cross, that you redeemed us from the sin nature that we have and brought us back into a right attitude with God the Father. And we acknowledge that you sent the Holy Spirit to live within us until you come again, to guide us and lead us and direct our ways, to chastise us, to correct us, to develop us, to help us to emulate Jesus Christ. In his servanthood, in his compassion, in his love, it began with us as sinners. So if you think that it stops right there, you've said these wonderful words, you're saved, that's it, you're wrong. Because you've missed the message. Jesus doesn't just want the words. He wants the actions. He didn't come to earth just to redeem you. He came to earth to someone who was created in his image so that you would see the examples that he led, the examples that he showed, and that you would be able to do the same. He wants you to emulate him. He wants you to serve just the way he served. It's not enough to just say the words. You have to follow up on that. You know, it's funny that God loved the world so much that he sent his son, a perfect, perfect entity, to earth, to imperfection, 
And all you have to do is look around the world today and see the state of this earth. You know, he gave us an earth that was really in pretty good condition. We've contaminated it with plastic in the water. We've sunk ships and uh, all kinds of other equipment, airplanes and uh, things like that with dangerous fluids and oils, chemicals. We polluted the water that he gave us. We've destroyed brothers and sisters in wars. Not only in this century, but in every century since we've been on this earth. Whether you're an Amalekite or a Roman or German or Italian or Japanese or American or Canadian, you participated in that destruction. And yet he came to earth with the ultimate authority and purpose to right the wrongs of individuals like you and me. And yet all you do is say a few words and you think you're saved. And you think that's the end of the story, the end of your commitment. Do you remember the verse that I read in Proverbs about a friend and a brother? Would you do what Jesus Christ did for you? You're his brother. Would you do that? More than that, you're his friend. At least that's what you've told them. When you said those words, when you spoke those words, you acknowledged that he was something different and that you wanted to be part of it, that you wanted to be part of his family. God the Father now calls you children. Interesting, isn't it? So what do you do for that right? You know, we talk about grace and that grace is given freely. Yes, it is. But there's also responsibility that comes with that grace. And do you acknowledge it? Do you take a hold of it? You know, it took a Savior, Jesus Christ, to fulfill prophecy and to sacrifice himself in service to both his Father and to us. And I find that really hard to swallow. That he had to sacrifice himself Himself for us, pardon me. I understand the sacrifice for his father. I understand the commitment that was there. I understand his love and wanting to do what is right in the eyes of his father. And his father acknowledges that way back in chapter 1 when Jesus is baptized and he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And he should be. But can God the Father say that about you? He can say that about you because of what Jesus did on the cross for you. But don't you feel a little sheepish that you've done nothing to gain that trust and that obedience and that love? You know, in reflection of this, we celebrate a single day event that's called Christmas. It's the birth of Jesus Christ. And we talk about presents. But have one of us brought a present to Jesus Christ, our brother? I gave presents to all kinds of people. But you know what? 
those presents that I gave to individuals, in most cases, in most cases, will rot and rust away before this month is gone. The children will have broken them, and they'll be in more pieces than you can imagine. And only God could replace them, could fix them, because I can't. So what does that say about the presence that we gave? What value do they have? Zero value. The value in the presence that you gave should have come with the love that you gave them with. And that's what the grace is that you received from God. He gave you a present that you can never repay. And I suggest that we need to give him back some form of gift, some form of acknowledgement, some form of present. Now, we're never going to be able to replace what he gave us. But we can certainly work on it a little bit, can't we? So we celebrate this one day. And that was yesterday. All of a sudden, Christmas is over. By the end of this week coming up, we're all going to be wondering what we're going to do for New Year's. We're not even going to be thinking about Christmas. The toys are half broken. Snowblower doesn't work anymore. You know, you've blown the track on your four-wheeler, whatever. They're gone. But Christ is still here. So focus on the other part of it. Focus on the Advent part of it. The Advent is the hope that we have in looking forward to his coming again. So you don't want to go downhill. David told me that I had to come up on the mountain here to speak. I don't want to fall down the mountain again. I'm up here now. I want God to keep me here. But I want to be worthy of being kept here. I don't want to just be kept here in spite of myself. I want to be part of his kingdom forever and ever. And I don't want to be standing off on the side when he comes to earth and thinking, boy, I'm not really worthy of this. This is quite the party and I don't know that I earned myself any favor in being here. And I know that grace is unmerited favor and that he gives that to us. But I still think that we have to work somehow on the other side. His example of humility and servanthood leads us and invites us. No, it commands us to practice humility and servanthood for ourselves, for others, for him. We're invited to come before the manger on bended knee to bow to our king who came in the form of a baby. But there's more to it than that. And Mark brings that forward as well. In Mark 8.34, Jesus says that whoever comes after me and desires that, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That doesn't mean kicking and screaming and sinning and continuing to fight who God is and what he wants you to do. In Mark 9.35, he says, He sat down and called the twelve, his disciples, to him and said, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and a servant of all. So he's calling you and he's calling you to be a servant. In Mark 10.21, he says, Jesus, looking back at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, 
Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. This was his answer to a rich man who said, What do I have to do to come into the kingdom? Take up your cross and follow me. Whatever you have, give it to the poor. And I know that that sounds harsh. And we do things in stages. And so it's not likely that all of us are going to go out and sell our houses and all of our, all of our goods and services and give it to the poor. But we can take a little step. We can do a little bit at a time. That's better than doing nothing. At least when he calls us before him and he asks us, what did you do on my behalf? Who did you speak to? Who did you love? Who did you show compassion to? You'll be able to have a little bit of an answer. Instead of saying, I spent all my time on things that rust and rot. Not a very comforting way to begin the new year. But we don't have to begin the new year that way. I don't mean to bring you down. I mean to bring you up. Because you're already there. As David said, we're already on the top of the mountain. Why get knocked off? As we move forward practicing postures of open-handedness and generosity, like we're supposed to be doing, the first thing of importance is that we have to acknowledge surrender. Surrender to Jesus Christ. To recognize that all that we have and all that we are is not something to be used for our own advantage, like the Christmas season that just passed. All of those presents were supposed to be for a purpose, but maybe not for the purpose that you gave the gifts. When you gave the gifts, was there any attachment to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We used it for our own advantage. We should have used it for His. Rather, we should have humbled ourselves on bended knees before the Lord and asked Him, how can we serve? And all you need to do is read the book of Mark. Pick any verse and there will be something there that shows you how Jesus served your brothers and sisters, how he served his father for you. Albert Einstein said that only a life lived for others is a life worthwhile. Next slide, David. Oh, there it is there. I'm sorry. Albert Einstein. He's supposed to be a pretty smart fellow. He knows that a life lived for others is a life worthwhile. We think of Albert Einstein as being this stuffy, stodgy, really intelligent person that nobody could understand, that probably spent his life locked away in a closet somewhere with one light bulb trying to figure out what all of these wonderful formulas meant or, uh, you know, the speed of sound and all those types of things. But even he understood that a life lived by yourself is a life not worth living. That a life lived for others is the only way to live. 
So as I close here in prayer to the Lord, I just ask you to spend a moment, perhaps, later on today or tonight, reflecting on the Gospel of Mark, reflecting on the urgency that's there, how many times you see the word immediately, or right then, the Lord said, right then the Lord went to Galilee, immediately the Lord went to, the Lord did, the Lord touched, the Lord spoke, the Lord preached. How many times Jesus was aware of people around him and he did something about it? I ask you the same question. How many times are people around you? Do you avoid it? Do you know that there might be a commitment there? That there's something you should do, but you take no action? This is a time when we reflect upon ourselves and our family and our friends and our relationship with God. But it is a time when God should be foremost in your minds and in all that you do. Not in just what you say, but in what you do. It's about serving. I'm going to close in prayer and then we're going to have uh, one more hymn to close out our day. And I pray that as we depart, that you will depart with the light and the grace and the attitude of servanthood that Jesus has laid upon you. Let's just bow in prayer. Lord, I confess that sometimes self-centeredness is an easy choice, and I make it far too often. Perhaps we all make it far too often. I'm sorry, Lord. I apologize. Help me to choose to surrender. I want to approach your throne, which was once a humble manger on bended knee, May our birthday present to you be the same humility and servanthood that you exemplified in your incarnation and ministry here on earth. Happy birthday, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.